In the Bible days, names were typically chosen from either the communication with the Lord or out of relationship with the Lord. When he was a trickster, his name was Jacob. But after the night that he wrestled with the Lord, on the other side of that wrestling, his name was changed to Israel. But there's this one name that has been consistent from the beginning of time. It is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And that name, that name is Jesus. opportunity today to call on a witness, I would call on the woman from Samaritan. We call her the woman at the well. As the story goes in the Bible, Jesus was on his way to Galilee, and he said that he must needs go to Samaria. When he got to Samaria, he went to this well, and there he met this woman. And he asked her, woman, give me drink. And this woman got a little indignant. She said, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for water? And Jesus replied to her that if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink because I am the living water. I am that water that will never run dry. She ran to her town and she told her friends, oh, come meet a man who told me all about myself. And I believe that if she were in this room with me this morning, her testimony would sound a little like this.
I could call on another witness, I'd call on the woman with the issue of blood. As the story goes, she had this issue with blood 12 very long years. And she had spent all her money going to all the best physicians of the time. But she heard that this man Jesus was coming through. And she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I would be made whole. So she pressed her way through the crowd. And she got to Jesus and she leaned forward and she touched his garment. And as the story is told, Jesus stopped because the power had left his body. And he said, who touched me? This woman came forward and fell at his feet and said, Father, it was I. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you whole. I believe that if she were in this building this morning, her testimony would sound a bit like this. today, I 
Get your Bibles, if you will. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to try to uh, bring to the conclusion, at least in the introduction, verse 4. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. Everybody giving kudos to Mr. and Mrs. Ed James. I mean, that's something to be shouting about right there. 55 years. 55 years of journeying together as husband and wife. That's a long time. Um, but I give you props. You guys have endured. So continue, continue to do so. We need you as our example. And there's some mothers around here, I'm sure, that's been on this journey for a long time as well. All right, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. Very short verse. Reads this way. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Grasping your faith, part three. Here's the final part of the introduction. Grasping your faith, part three. Now, with a clear and pointed focus, it is obvious that John elevates in this opening statement several critical points. First, he says, your personal testimony has to be standing upon your personal experience with Jesus Christ. So remember what he says in verse 1 and 2 and even partially in verse 3. We testify. We're able to give witness because we're going to tell you about what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, and what we have held with our own hands. What has touched us in relation to walking with God, that's the story we're going to tell you about. The second thing he tells us is that one must embrace the God statement. And this God statement is that Jesus is both God incarnate as well as man, human being, which qualifies him to be what John calls at the end of verse one, the word of life, the word of life, his ability to be both God and man. He's the incarnation of God in himself. Jesus is. And as a result, Jesus could identify with the pain predicament of everyone he comes in contact with. And then he's able to provide the proper solution by way of healing or setting free or delivering because he's both God and man. That's the second thing. God and man. I got to believe that. I've got to embrace that as a part of not only the word of God, but a critical doctrine. In Christian theology, it's called the doctrine of the incarnation. The third thing John says is that the word of life, Jesus, causes me to testify, to proclaim, to preach about his passion, his provision, his protection, and his power. His passion because he not only saves those who calls on his name, but his passion reached beyond the situation to which the person calls out to be saved. So his passion reaches 
to us in a space where God loves us despite of what we have done or who we are. That's the message we got through this morning in our Sunday school lesson with Hosea, that God's passion is forever extensive and reaching out to us. Not only his passion, but his provision that God meets us. God provides for us continuously each and every day. Doesn't matter what it is, whether it's mercy, peace, assurance, faith, hope, uh, bread, water, doesn't matter. His provision is made clear for us every single day. Some of y'all shouting about that right now because you know if it had not been for the Lord providing for you, some of you shouting because you know the passionate situation where God gave you compassion and was passionate enough to save you where you are and to keep renewing your life and restoring you every day, no matter where you are, what you're going through, that's a shouting point for you right now. That's what John is saying. We shouting about that because we're grasping our faith to remember he saved me when I was. He saved me where I was. He keeps on rescuing me no matter what I'm doing. His protection. We argue that if it hadn't been for the protection of God, we would be in some different spaces right now. God opened some doors. God watched over us as we walked through some dangerous waters. As we walked through some difficult parts in life, difficult times in life. God protected us. When evil was all around us and attempted to destroy us, God's protection watched over us. And God's power. God is the one that gave us power, says Jesus. I not only uh, saw it, but John says, I saw it. And when I saw it, I, I witnessed it, but I beheld it for myself. I know the power that God provides in bringing us through and seeing us through. I've had to go in some situations, says John, and I wasn't for sure if I could survive because presence of evil was all around me. Every day I got to face that kind of thing. And yet it's God's power that keeps you coming back every day. I know some of it is that paycheck. And the other fact is you need a job. But we probably could go somewhere else and find a job, may not pay more or may pay less, but we keep on showing up because there's a power in us that keeps giving us inspiration to stand in the presence of evil and not bow down nor run away, not give in to its pressure, but it allows us to stand tall. Why? In other words, I'm trying to say to us this morning that John says to us in this very contemporary uh, language, we know what it means when we say, I said I wasn't going to tell nobody, but I couldn't keep it to myself. What couldn't I keep to myself? The fact that he loves me. Couldn't keep that to myself. The fact that he saved me. Couldn't keep it to myself. The fact that he keeps me. Couldn't keep it to myself. The fact that he heals me and provides for me and protects me and anoints me and brings miracles to me, works miracles in me, works miracles around me, works miracles through me. Do I need to say any more? Is there anybody who can testify? I said I wasn't going to keep it to myself, but I couldn't help it. I had to tell somebody about what the Lord has done for me. I became a testifier. I am a testifier. He's sweet I know it's all because he manifested himself. That's what John said. He manifested himself in verse two. He revealed himself. He revealed to me how he, Jesus, is the light in the midst of 
darkness. In other words, he, life, is exchanged for death. And have you noticed something? Have you noticed that even though darkness is present, have you noticed that God doesn't always remove darkness? But what he does, because if you read 1 John chapter 1, and then you read through the Gospel of John, God doesn't always remove darkness, but it appears that what God does is allow light to walk in that dark space and then illuminate the light <laughs> so that it just overcrowds, it just overshadows the darkness. Isn't that amazing? So when I come into a dark room, even though the darkness doesn't leave, I flip the light switch and the illumination of the light overshadows everything that's dark in there. And darkness is pushed into another space. And that's what God does for us. He allows us to walk in dark spaces and he uses us as light so that we can illuminate in a context when otherwise darkness would always be dominant. And that's what he tells us in verse two that he is witnessing and that he's talking and preaching and telling the story about how God is light and he uses us to illuminate that. Then there's a fourth thing. John says we need to share in our story so we can have fellowship. That's his word in verse three, that we have fellowship, that we can testify about what we have seen, about what we have heard. And so our fellowship with each other is strengthened. That's the joy about coming to church. When we get in with one another, we get to have strength that comes from the fellowship of being with brothers and sisters who tell us about their story. We get strengthened by their story when we heard how they survive or that they are surviving or that they're pushing through or that they've already come out. They're victorious. We get strengthened by their words of encouragement. Their stories not only strengthen us, but they solidify us. That helps us recognize that I'm on the right road. I'm on the right road. Even though it's a hard time for me right now, I'm still on the right road. I'm on God's timetable and God is still directing me, ordering my steps, giving me victory, making sure I'm protected and provided for. So my faith is being solidified that I'm believing in the right person. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And then I'm spiritually enhanced. In other words, when I'm uh, sharing stories with brothers and sisters. I'm listening to their story. I'm spiritually enhanced. I'm growing. I'm growing. I'm also recognizing I'm not the only one with this challenge, not the only one who's had to walk through this situation. But even though we may have different kinds of situation, they are still depending on the same hope, the same power, same anointing, the same word to bring them through. So I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually enhanced by fellowship not only with them, but fellowship also with God. Now, John tells us in verse four that I want you to see, says John, the net result of the community that's described in verse one, two, and three. That's all he's been doing. He's been telling us, as Martin Luther King calls it, a beloved community, a community that testifies about a living Lord that they have heard with their own ears that they have taken the chance to see with their own eyes and that they've held, they have beheld, they have seen in their own life the mighty things that God has done. That word in verse three, fellowship, koinonia, is described as the shared 
labor. So you think about shared labor, you think about Peter, James, and John. They experience shared labor as fishermen, or it could be defined as the common enjoyment of the same gift or experience, such as grace. So when you testify about grace and I testify about grace and he testifies about grace and she testifies about grace, we all notice that we got different stories, but it's the same grace that's working in the midst of all of us. Here's how Paul says it in Philippians 1 and 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. In other words, we've been kept and taken care of by the same grace no matter what circumstance is, it's the same grace. It's also this fellowship, this same experience could be the blessing of the gospel. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 22, listen to what he says. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I, became, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Verse 23, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. In other words, Paul says, I'm sharing with you, you share with me, but I do what I have to do and be with those that I need to be with in an attempt that I know I'm not gonna win everybody, but somebody's gonna get saved. That's, that's Paul speaking faith and hope in his own testimony. Somebody is going to get saved as a result of me sharing my story and I'm planting that seed. And I'm going to trust God's going to water it in his own due time. Then Paul also says, I want us to share in the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And this is deep because he said, this is how the Holy Spirit works in mighty ways. Second Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse one. This is what he says. This will be my third visit to you. This is the reason why some scholars believe that Paul wrote not one, two, but three letters to the Corinthians. We never have found the third one, but they believe he took a third letter also, but that's neither here nor there. I just want you to know that. That's why he says it about that third visit. But every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's that's a reference to Old Testament uh, ethics, Old Testament law, Old Testament practice, says Paul. Out of the mouths of two witnesses, something is confirmed. And Paul is saying uh, to the Corinthians, we confirm our story because it's more than just me telling you about Jesus. There's a whole lot of folk who are telling you about Jesus. And more than just one person told us about the Lord. We've heard the story a lot. But we've not only heard the story, but now our own life has confirmed the story. So listen to what Paul says. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while I'm absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or of any others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. Now, there's some in the second Corinthian letter, Paul really wrote that because it was a refutation to those who were doubting and who said that Paul wasn't an authentic apostle. And so he had to speak out and make some things clear to folk. I know who I am and who I am is confirmed. So listen to what he said. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet 
He lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not going to spend my time trying to argue with you. I'm going to trust that the Holy Ghost is going to be my eyewitness and is going to confirm my story. And sometimes when you're dealing with people, you don't have to stand and argue with them. Just tell them your story and let the chips fall where they may. Don't sit there and try to convince them. Don't fall to pieces. Don't lose your mind. Don't get radical or don't get shaken by them. Tell them what you got to tell them and let it roll. Because Paul is saying we trust that the Holy Spirit will be our confirmation. He will be the one who will not only confirm our story, uh, but will do something with that story in the life of those who we drop it with. It was St. Bernard of Clavet, the founder of the Sister in Order, who used the Song of Solomon in his writing of his mystical commentary to communicate what's happening between God and a soul when there's a conversation, communion, fellowship going on. Uh, he says that we are food for one another just as lovers are. So he used the Song of Solomon as his backdrop to illustrate by way of drawing from that story, just as lovers have a dependency on one another, so believers must have a dependency on one another. There must be this fellowship, this coming together, this oneness of who we are. He says that Jesus gives us himself as food in the Eucharist or as we call it communion in the communion moment and the willing souls, you and I offer ourselves to return in return to God. That's Paul's word in Romans 12, 1. I beseech you to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Bernard contributes to what we call mystical theology in those words, but here is his deeper meaning of what he's trying to say with John's word here in verse four. Catch this now. Spiritual things, says Bernard de Clave, must be tasted more than understood. Spiritual things must be tasted more than understood. He says the mystic sits in the silence of such language until it silences him or her into the experience itself. Good God Almighty. Now let me try to break that down for you. Open that up. Unpack that. Bernard Clave is saying that when you talk about God, it's such a mysterious relationship that it has to be confirmed, and it is confirmed, when you sit and converse and commune with God, it's such mystical, yet God gives you communion by touching you in life's experiences. So once again, I highlight what our ancestor which says, I wouldn't serve a God that I couldn't feel sometimes. And we got to admit it. Sometimes when we come to church, you don't always feel God the same way. You get the word. You get the music, you get the song, you get the prayers, you get it. But then there are other occasions when, man, it's as if God is not only in that sanctuary, but you are the only one 
in that sanctuary, in the presence of God. It's as if nobody else in that room exists and you can feel God, the awe, the reverence of God overtakes you. And when that word comes down the pipe, when that power comes down the pipe and you start tasting the goodness of God, you start sitting before him and that sitting before you, that silence causes that experience to become a reality. Wow, that's those are the words that are totalized in the language of the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's the advocation we got out of this text. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's John's way of saying something is happening. We wrote, we wrote this, verse 4 so that our joy would be made complete. And that's why God visits us from time to time with such powerful presence, so that our joy may be made complete. We can eyewitness the beauty of his presence. Psalm 63 verse five says this, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. This is what happens when my life experience with Jesus is integrated with the word of God. When I start seeing the word come to life and I start permitting that word to just be engraved, encrafted into my life, and I start seeing it become a reality, man, something happens. And what happens is joy. Joy comes to my life. Here's what the devil tries to do. If the devil can't keep us from salvation, then what the devil will do is work hard at causing the believer to be robbed of the joy of their salvation. To make one believe uh, that they're not good stewards of what God has blessed them with and they're not so with us. But listen to what John says in verse four. John says that it's almost a replica of what Jesus says in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you. And here it is, here's the shouting point, and that your joy might be full. In other words, John says that I'm telling this story and we wrote to you this letter because we want you to have joy in your life. John wants us to grasp uh, two things particularly, but three things I'll give you in this text in regard in verse four to our community in our church fellowship. This joy comes because first of all, it is a composition of partnership in experience. We got joy, church, because it's a composition of partnership in experience. We're not just a group of people who share common sympathies for a cause. We're not coming in a place because we have intellectual consensus, which is an attempt to discover about God. We are people who, who have a shared common living experience in Jesus Christ. We talk about him. We urge others to talk about him and to grow deeper in him and to discover that through him, 
we realize we're building a life together as a church. We're sharing in our spiritual walk together as believers in Jesus Christ. We've come to the conclusion that our fellowship is triangular. My life in fellowship with Christ, your life in fellowship with Christ, and our life in fellowship with one another. We have that triangular experience that causes us to recognize that John says in verse four, this is the net result, the net benefit, the byproduct of being together that we make our joy complete. This theme of fellowship and joy is greatly parallel to what John had wrote in terms of his theme and what even he heard from Jesus in John 15, as I quoted earlier. But he begins in John 15 by reminding us, abiding in Christ in order to be a disciple and fruit bearer. Because Jesus said in verse 8 of John 15, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to the Father, says Jesus. Jesus then said, I'll, I told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. In other words, Jesus was saying, when you get the word in you by staying connected to me, and John is saying, we're telling you about what the word has done, not only before us, but in us, it creates an overwhelming joy in your life. And we are testifiers. In fact, we might, in fact, we might be shouting right now about how the word has blessed our life, has made a way for us, has strengthened us, has encouraged us, has helped order our steps. Because at the end of the day, the word brings us complete joy. And John is saying, I can't let that go because in this, in this composition of partnership and experience, we get to see the joy of the Lord in many different ways. Then there's a second thing that John says. John says that this joy is birthed through the prerequisite of loving each other in this community. Here's what he says. In John 15 and verse 12, through 17. And, and if you would just, just turn there, because here's a here's a blessing for you to hear this text as John lifts this up for us and gives us inspiration. In John 15, beginning in verse 12, here's something that happens to us when we become followers of Jesus. Listen to what John says. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for slaves do not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Is John tying 
to the success of this community, love of each other is a prerequisite. In other words, John is saying you want to be blessed by God and you want to see your life explode, love each other. You want to see God multiply your community, love each other. You want to see God bring change in the midst of people's lives and people's hearts and the brokenness of people. Love each other. Love people through their pain. Love them in their pain. Even love them because of their pain. That's what John says. Because this love factor is what makes the joy so exciting in your life, says John. And John said this is a prerequisite. In fact, he says, it's that because our community church, that's the thread love that binds us together. And it's not merely horizontal. It's vertical. Horizontal means it's merely social. It's a social phenomenon. But John says we got a fellowship with the father and with the son in verse three, meaning there's a vertical communion that's at work as well. John is pushing the idea or the issue of community, perhaps because as some scholars say, there were some fractions that may have broken out over a theological difference regarding the doctrine of incarnation. And it could have very well have. Could have broken out because there was some schism or some concern or some misunderstanding, maybe no understanding at all about what the doctrine of incarnation meant. Remember, the Gnostics were working hard to make sure that that doctrine did not catch footing in the Christian community. And John is working hard to make sure it does because it's the essence of who Jesus is. If Jesus is not both God and man, he can't be the savior. And John says you have to grasp that in your Christian faith because Jesus is God and man is extremely important. It's a necessity. And yet he's telling us in this community, Jesus is the illustration of both God and man and the composition of love and he makes that a part of the prerequisite for us in our community to experience joy. We got to love one another as God has loved us. Now that's tough right now. That's, 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 that can be tough depending on who you got to love. In the context of 1 John, we're talking about loving each other in the Christian community. Even those that stretch our attempt to love even those that might be frustrating, even those that may be difficult to love, we gotta love them. It's the answer to breaking satanic demonic yokes. It's the answer to setting free those who wanna be free, but don't know how. It's the love to mending back together those whose lives have been broken by other people, have been exploited by other people, have been destroyed by other people. It is the answer to bring about revolution in people's lives. It's the revelation that brings forth the new beginning in many, loving one another. That's why it's the major theme in John's gospel. It's a word that Jesus advocates, love one another as I have loved you. It's that experience, it creates joy. Then there's a third thing. And the third thing is, Christian discipleship must be experiential. Now, here's what I mean. Your spiritual realities 
must unite with your life. They must be together. In other words, your, your, your talk of God can't be just mere theory. You can't just talk about what God did for my mama and my daddy, grandmama, granddad. No, no, you got to get your own story. And you can't get your own story until you've heard him, till you've tasted him, till you've touched him, till you've held him, until you've seen with your own eyes what God can do in your life. It's the experience, says John. That's what makes joy complete. It's the experience. Your spiritual life, your realities must match your life. It's about the vitality of the life of Jesus in us. And John is writing from his experience. My faith in Jesus permits me to feel the presence of God. Now, I've heard, trust me, when I was in seminary, I heard a whole lot. And I heard a lot of people talk about how, a lot of people talk about, and professors talk about how uh, Christianity is not, is not about feeling. It's about faith. It's about trust. I got that. But what good is all this faith and trust if every now and then you can't, in your inner being, feel the power of this presence? In John chapter seven, I think it is. I think it's chapter seven. Jesus talks about he being in you as rivers of water flowing up into everlasting life. I think that might be a quarter of my use somewhere else here in a minute. In other words, what I'm trying to say is if you can't feel that joy sometimes, if you can't feel that voice, if you can't feel that touch, if you can't feel that, ex if you don't have that experience, then how do you know your story is real? And so I can't rest on the mere theory that I do. I trust God by faith, but every now and then, Lord, I need a touch, just a touch to let me know, yep, I'm his child. I need that touch. And that's what John is saying. You need a touch. Your discipleship must be experiential. You got to have a touch from God. You got to feel the presence of God at the right time. In fact, that's what gives me the push, the inspiration to push on, to believe that my story is not only my story, but I got affirmation that God is in the midst of my story. And that pushes me on. Something more profound that this experience produces and john talks about joy it's undescribable joy it's undescribable joy in other words sometimes god touches so that words can't adequately explain what i'm doing what i'm experiencing uh in the book of acts chapter four well three and four um remember the man who's healed and he's at the gate, beautiful, he's healed. But in chapter four, uh, or chapter three, when John, when uh, Peter reaches out, touches him by hand, he leaps up, he leaps up. And the Bible says uh, he leaps shortly after being healed. He leaps up. No words, just jump to his feet. His leaping suggests that he has an, in, an undescribable or indescribable joy that he can't articulate. 
All I know is that I'm just happy that I'm not the way I used to be. <laughs> or we can look at the man in John 9 when the Pharisees questioned his healing and they told him that Jesus was a sinner. And the man said, listen to me, whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, whereas I was blind, now I see. That experience brought those words out of his belly. That experience made him testify to those who were questioning who Jesus was. And you can, you can say anything you want about him, but I know who he is in my life. I know what joy he's brought to me. I know what peace he's brought to me. I know what he's delivered me from. I know how he's healed my body. I know how he's protected my household. I know how he's blessed my children. I know how he's blessed my mate. I know how he's made a way for me. You can say what you want to say, but I know what the Lord has done for me. And I am overwhelmingly full of joy. And sometimes I don't have words to say how I feel, but I just feel that way. It's undescribable, indescribable joy. But then also there's unbelievable joy, mind-blowing joy. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter is in prison, there's a little girl by the name of Rhoda, along with others who are in the house praying for Peter. Well, when Peter shows up at the door, the Bible says that uh, Peter knocked and Rhoda, says the Bible, didn't open the door, but instead ran back, read the text, in joy to tell others about who she see at the front door. In other words, she was so overwhelmed by joy that she didn't have time. She didn't think about opening the door. I got to go back and tell somebody about how good God has been and what a joy it is to see Peter at the door. We've been praying for him. Now, isn't that the same kind of joy that we get when we see we've been praying for somebody and they get up from a sick bed? We know when they went into the hospital, they were in one condition, but now they've come out in another. Isn't that the kind of joy that we get when we see someone who's been struggling in life and then the door breaks open and they finally get an opportunity and they walk through it and their life is beginning to be reversed? Don't we get that kind of joy when we see our children were going in one direction, but we kept on praying and kept on nurturing and now they're walking in the right direction? Don't we get that kind of joy? Or when we have a co-worker that we've been interceding and praying for, we've been trying to help them out. We've been bringing them what we need to bring them, whether it's food, whether it's giving them a ride to work, whatever. And now finally their life is starting to change and they're starting to become entirely new individuals. Don't we have that same kind of joy where we have to run and tell somebody how good God has been in using us and in working through us to transform somebody's life. That's the kind of joy that John is talking about, that we may be complete. In other words, John is saying, I don't mind being blessed. I'm happy being blessed. I glory in being blessed. But I feel even more excited when I get to be a blessing to somebody else. That's what we're saying. Indescribable joy, unbelievable joy, undeniable joy, evidence that's too convincing to deny. That's what happened to Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. We talked about it a little bit last week when they were standing before the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin just got upset because they couldn't deny the fact, they couldn't deny it, that the man to whom they had healed was standing right there. And some people become haters to you because you tell them you're blessed 
and they can't see it, but now they do see it and they can't deny the fact that you give credit to God. You give God glory because you have tasted and saw that the Lord is good. They are overwhelmingly disturbed that you've taken that approach. And now they can't deny the fact, can't deny that all that you said about what the Lord would do in your life. Here it is. They see it manifested. You told them that I may not have one now. I may not have a car now, but I, I just I'm keeping believing by faith. I'm keeping paying my tithes. I'm keeping trusting that God going to work that thing out for you. Now they see you roll up. And what you were talking about. And all they can say is, oh, you finally got a car. Yep. But I told you I was going to get it. The very one I told you I was going to get because I trusted that God would make a way for you. You told me you were going to move and get you a house. You told them that. They didn't believe you. Now when you send them an invitation to come to the housewarming party, they can't believe it when they get there. Now your haters, when they get there, you know the second thing they're going to say is, where the furniture? Where are the furniture? You got to go back and tell them, don't worry about it. It's coming too. It's all in God's plan as we work this thing out economically. God's working all things together for the good. See, ain't no denying when God bless you. You know when it's a blessing from God. Some of you are shouting because you know how you were working parts of your personality out. Some things you were trying to work through in your own life. You asked the Lord to help you and they didn't believe it. They say you, you cussed all the time. You'll always be a cusser. You'll always be angry. You would never change. Now they saw the evolution. They saw you involved into a whole nother person. They can't believe it. It's because you know what God will do for you. He has provided for you undeniable evidence in terms of joy. And can't nobody deny it. So you got to trust, trust God's process. So what am I saying? Where did God, where God did that one thing, and, 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 and think about this for a moment. What was that one thing that God did for you and you can't deny it no matter how hard you try? What's that one thing? And you know what it is. That one thing that God has done for you. And no matter how hard you try, you can't deny it because there's too much evidence that it was the Lord that opened that door. It was God that made that possible. And I'm not even going to try to fight it. I'm just going to keep on waiting on God and trusting the process that God has taken me through. John is referring to complete joy. Now, here's my closing statement. Here's what John meant when he talks about complete joy. He is talking about complete joy. Your mind is full of joy. Your heart is full of joy. Your emotions is full of joy. Your desires are matched with joy. They are all satisfied in the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. This joy affects the whole personality because it comes from who I am in the person of Jesus Christ. And so John says, I'm celebrating today John encourages us to celebrate today because we've got joy complete in the person of Christ because we have seen him. We have touched him with our own hands, the experience in our life. We have heard him and heard of him in the proclamation of the word. And we've seen what he's done in our life through the revelation of the word. Oh, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. He's full of blessings today, Zion. He's got them all with your name on them. Walk in the victory that God has in store for us. Come on, let's pray together. Lord, bless our time in the sense that we have come together to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the moment of the word. And now, God, as those seeds have been planted, may they find deep roots in the soil of all of our hearts that in due season we shall bear fruit. Somebody today, Lord, I pray, has trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And in telling us that they are new creations, we're going to shout with joy that they've been born again. Somebody today, Lord, got answered prayer. They've been praying about something, and this word provided the answer that they needed. Thank you for the revelation, and may from this point forward, they walk in that victory. Thank you for answering their prayer. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm excited about what God is doing for us, Zion. Thank you so much again for your continuous support. As always, as we conclude this worship service, we ask you, if you would, to make sure you go and make your continuous contribution of tithes and offerings to the church, whether it be by e-text, whether you use your phone to do that, electronic text, by text, text phone, or uh, text uh, uh, paying, should I say, or whether it be by e-giving on the website. Go to the church website, click on there, uh, go to your account, make your contributions, however you do it, whether you send checks into the mail, we certainly appreciate your provision of making this ministry possible and to continue to support us as well. Uh, we want you to continue to have a blessed, wonderful week. We've made it through May. I think it's tomorrow is the first day of June. So we're probably getting closer to closer to perhaps to some better news that will come from the governor. We're making progress. I think there was a great opening on Friday. People were beginning to filter back. I noticed the traffic picked up in different areas. So we're making some sense of progress back to what we saw as previous normality. But keep in mind, we still got to follow the rules. Keep wearing your mask. Keep wearing your gloves. When you go out in public, keep practicing six feet social distancing. Make sure you protect yourself, but also you are doing the responsible thing by protecting others as well, making sure that nothing happens to them while you're in their presence. If you're going to work, make sure you practice whatever protection you need, wear whatever protection you need. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys, and I miss y'all big time. I think we miss each other. We've had this virtual experience. What a wonderful thing it is for us to be able to virtually have connection, but it's nothing like being able to see your face, touch you, and to hear your voice. So my prayer is that God will so move this thing out. We'll get through it, find at least some remedy uh, where we can go back to church without the protective gear, at least have some interaction. I don't know if that will happen, but I'm praying it does in the real near future. So Zion, let's keep on keeping on in the name of the Lord. Always know that the best is what yet to come because God's got a blessing that's got your name on it. Thank you, Zion, for your time today. Continue to be blessed as we look forward to seeing you again this coming Wednesday evening as we share in prayer time and in the teaching of the word of God. Love you. Have a wonderful, blessed day in the Lord.